Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is part two of a two-part series on pregnancy cravings. They call me Ben. I texted my mom earlier to see if she had any cravings while I was in utero, and I'll update with uh, with what we find if she gets back to me. She's a busy person. What, what about you, Noel? Did, uh, we talked about this at the beginning of part one, the idea of pregnancy cravings, right? Yeah, just like I said, the spicy stuff with my, uh, with my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, don't really have that kind of relationship with my mom, but um, she always has weird cravings. She likes to eat like peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches, but that has nothing to do with pregnancy. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's an elderly person at this point, but I just, yeah, she's always had weird tastes. I imagine, I mean, you know what? I'm going to broach the subject. Maybe it'll bring us closer together uh, of what she craved when she was pregnant with me. I'm going to guess really spicy like Chinese food, but that's just a conjecture based on on what I know about her. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting historical thing, how it's been used to kind of predict everything from, you know, the size of uh, a child's genitalia to what kind of adult they will end up becoming and uh, what maybe some of their, you know, tendencies will be to this idea that does have kind of a modern analog in epigenetics, uh, this thing called the theory of maternal imagination, the idea that experiences can be passed down from the mother while, you know, still pregnant to the fetus that then will carry those experiences on throughout their life. That's probably the closest thing to something that we have seen some scientific evidence to back up. Although, Ben, if I'm not mistaken, epigenetics is still something of a fringe science, is it not? Well, it's definitely emergent. We're learning more about it every day as a species, sort of the same way that you and I are learning more every day about our super producer, Max Williams. Ha, Max, thought I forgot. Put that sound cue in there. 
There it is. Nope. Largest asparagus. Max, the largest asparagus, Williams, is live and direct. You're, you're absolutely right, Noel. The study of how our lives impact our descendants continues today. And I would argue that the study of food cravings during pregnancy is a predecessor to our current studies in the field of epigenetics. You know, we mentioned, I believe in our in our previous episode, we mentioned Nicholas Culpepper's work uh, where he found that food cravings were the, quote, chiefest signs of conception. So back before people could get, you know, a sonogram or something like that, you would be a person, you know, in the 1600s and you would say, man, why do I want to only eat pickles? And then someone would say, well, that's because uh, that, that's because you're expecting. That's the only reason anybody would be into pickles this much <laughs> to this degree. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was solid. Well, and like like we were saying too, you know, I mean, aside from the Egyptians, who seem to have a lot of stuff on lock before anyone else got mm-hmm. to it, the idea of like what peeing on certain uh, was it pieces of wheat or something like that, barley and, and or, wheat, or yeah, barley right. seeds, and seeing well, which ones would sprout the quickest, and then I wonder, you said that we we had some evidence to to show that this was effective in predicting pregnancy, but I wonder, is there some enzyme that's excreted in the urine of a pregnant woman that maybe is conducive to helping cultivate uh, barley? Uh, or, or is there, I, I don't know. We don't, we, we didn't quite get that far into it, but it is interesting. And the Egyptians did figure out some pretty sciencey stuff before they really had any business doing so just based on like the available wisdom and technology of the time, but they made those pyramids somehow. But we do know that, uh, the idea of certain cravings or certain bodily changes are often good predictors. Even today, um, when, you know, like you said, women know their body and know when something is changing, but it was really taken to the extreme, right? The absolute mm-hmm. extreme back in the 16th, 17th, and even the 18th century. Uh, and today's episode, I'm just going to do a tiny little previously on. Uh, the last thing we talked about are one of, aside from throwing strawberries uh, at, uh, at at pregnant women, um, either hindering or bringing about these strawberry birthmarks that we, we know are a thing, there was the story of the um, midwife by the name of Sarah Stone. And Sarah Stone was a very prominent 18th century midwife who took copious notes and, you know, went through and, and assisted in um, hundreds of pregnancies. And out of all of those pregnancies, one involving a woman who was having some very heavy bleeding that could have you know, caused her to actually bleed out. That is a thing that happens. But it was stopped when she realized that she had been just longing for, craving a pea pod or some kind of, you know, like a salad made of peas. And when the midwife was able to get that for her, the bleeding stopped. So, Ben, you used the term confirmation bias, which is the idea of something enhancing a belief when it happens, maybe even only once. And that is absolutely the case here because in all of the rest of her notes, There were no other examples of some sort of satiated craving instantly causing a uh, very dangerous complication to to go away. But, you know, moving on in history, some of these cravings get absolutely bonkers, don't they, Ben? They do. Yes, that's that's correct. And it ties into some of the many stereotypes the medical community had about women in general at the time. They would describe some cravings as, quote, hysterical. And 
we've all heard the phrase hysterical, but uh, sometimes I think people forget the etymology of that word. It, the term hysteria itself comes from a Greek word, hystera, which means uterus. So be careful with the word hysterical. It's, it's historically used to dismiss the very valid and legitimate concerns of women. So imagine you're a doctor, you're a midwife, 16th, 17th, 18th century, and you're noting that some expectant mothers seem to have an incredible desire for certain foods. They have an excessive desire, uh, something that one German text, it's Müllerus abridged or a complete system of theory and practice of physics would call a, quote, violent and insatiable longing. Uh, <laughs> this, this, is, this is something people were aware of. There would be very specific and sometimes extreme desires for certain foods. But people also noticed that at times these cravings could become even more unorthodox. Some expected mothers appear to desire things that are not usually classified as food. You know, this condition is known as pica today, P-I-C-A, and that comes from the Latin, which means magpie, and <laughs> we can only assume that this word comes about because people with this affliction collected all sorts of weird stuff to eat, like nickels, stickers, I'm making these things up, uh, hopefully not cans of paint, um, toenails, maybe they were eating toenails, I don't know. It's certainly possible, but we, we know these conditions uh, exist, and I actually have a friend who has a form of, of pica or pica where she craves eating clay. Uh, specifically, mm -hmm. like a kaolin, mm -hmm. just like a, like a Georgia, it. a Georgia thing. It's like you can get it. It's it's edible and it's it's got some kind of nutritional qualities to it. But it is something that she eats in place of just wanting to like literally eat dirt. So mm -hmm. people that have this condition kind of need to mitigate it in some way, right? But there are extreme examples, very rare examples. Uh, one in particular known as extreme polyphagia. Uh, mm -hmm. We actually did an episode on this guy, if I'm not mistaken. A a former French soldier and sideshow artist named Tarer, who was accused of actually eating a baby out of a maternity ward. So kind of weird full circle there. Unverified. Unverified, but we do know that he would eat things like candles and nails, and that trash, was part of his shtick. Trash. trash. Apparently the smell was absolutely unbearable, but it's true. There are some extreme examples noted in some midwife you know, collections of, of notes that do show some forms of this in pregnant women. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, shout out to Kaelin. I tried it on a show that I used to do with our colleague Lauren Vogelbaum called Snack Stuff, which is, I, I'm pretty sure, is still kicking it around on Facebook somewhere. But we, we ate a lot of weird stuff. Yes, you're right, Noel. People have followed their cravings. And these cravings were not always for things that we would ordinarily consider food, like the clay example. Hopefully, I am just making up the nickel and stickers thing. But most unusually, some expecting mothers apparently developed an appetite for long pig. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Long pig is the old historical euphemism for human flesh. In in 1671, a midwife named Jane Sharp wrote a book called The Midwife's Book, and she said the seventh sign that a woman was with child was that, quote, she hath a preternatural desire to something not fit to eat nor drink, as some women with child have longed to bite off a piece of their husband's buttocks. Uh, husband's buttocks, by the mm-hmm. way, I should point out, those are capitalized. Now, you got to wonder, is this really a specific craving for human flesh or she's just angry and irritated at the husband and in a, in a bad mood and wants to bite him in the ass? Right. Is it an any old butt will do situation or is it like, no, you jerk, you got me into this? Exactly. Um, so that's okay. Once again, Ben, in all the collections of all the midwives, you know, we probably have just one or two examples of this. Mm. And yet it kind of invaded the zeitgeist or became conventional wisdom, even though it was very um, confirmation bias city. So, okay, we've got women who are now trying to bite their husband's butts. Um, we've got Daniel Sennert in his book, Practical Physic. Uh, he claimed that a woman quote, though she loved him, her husband, that is, uh, very well, had killed him, eat part and powdered the rest to satisfy her desire for his flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the point you bring up about these being isolated incidents in the in the historical record. But it's not a case of just one instance. There's another medical text a golden practice of physic 
which is spelled the old school way, P-H-Y-S-I-C-K. And in this in this medical text by a guy named Felix Platter, uh, the author warns, quote, some love raw flesh like men eaters, <laughs> men eaters, but all one word. Some have been like beasts and bitten people's arms by violence. So this was, jokes aside, this was a cause of concern for medical professionals of the day because they knew that these cravings were coming from somewhere. And you had to do a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. If we aid and abet someone having an extreme craving, like cannibalism, then we have to also wonder if there is a danger in denying this craving, if they're endangering the child. Like if someone is saying, okay, I want to eat, I, I want to eat this clay. And you say, well, this clay has no nutritional value, but your body is saying you want it. Who am I to deny you? And and at this point, you know, in the 1600s, people don't have the benefit of the medical knowledge we have today. So it's not as if you could go to a doctor, get a series of like blood tests, get your BMI checked, and then be put on a nutritious diet. You would literally think, well, should I eat this soft cheese? Should I eat these rabbit heads? What are they going to do to my kid? And why is my body telling me I have to eat these now? Also, if you're a woman in the 1600s, as terrible as it is to admit, we have to tell the truth here. People just don't believe women in the 1600s and even today. Not only do they not, I mean, like, talk about mansplaining. I mean, that term was just at its absolute peak back in those days, especially. Again, that's also why I appreciate that midwives and these wise women were often the go-to, you know, individuals in these situations, but they were operating largely on wisdom that was passed down from men. Like, we talked about Hippocrates, we talked about uh, Aristotle, I believe, so a lot of that kind of incorrect stuff that maybe they would have used to not believe their own bodies uh, instead to, to kind of throw that intuition that they absolutely have out the window and just go with these, you know, quote unquote, powerful men. That's a negative force as well, I think, in this whole situation. But these types of superstitions, right, and this stigma of, you know, what these uh these cravings meant in pregnancy and after really hung on a lot longer than you'd think. You know, we're talking about medieval times, right? Okay, all this stuff makes sense. 17th century, okay, maybe, okay, there should be some remnants, but it should be mainly going in a little bit more of a progressive direction. 18th century, surely. 19th and 20th? No. In the mm -hmm. 19th and 20th centuries, you still had a lot of this very, you know, kind of superstitious and wrongheaded thinking wrapped up in pregnancy and those cravings. Yeah, in the middle of the 1800s, one guy, Joel Shue, called pregnancy cravings overall abnormal. And he said that women who have these cravings tend to be, quote, those who suffer from indigestion, those who have constipation, and especially those who are hysterical. Many ignorant, nervous women seem to suppose that it really is a necessary part of their being have these longings in pregnancy. Max, can I get a, like, a get out of here sound cue or something? Because forget this guy. Just forget him. I mean, he's using hysteria in uh, the misogynistic way. Like, he's on purpose 
using it to dismiss the concerns of these expecting mothers. He goes on and he says, We need hardly say that these longings should never be gratified. No possible good can come from it. Only harm, the same as at other times. Talk about mansplaining, Noel. This guy is a real pill. Exactly. And it's not to soapbox too much, but it's something we still deal with today in terms of these kind of powerful men dictating what women should or shouldn't or can and can't do with their bodies. Uh, It's very much a product of this type of thinking that's been going on throughout history. We do start to see a little bit more progressive thinking, relatively speaking, in the 20th century, early 20th century, when it comes to starting to debunk some of this Superstition. We have Josiah Morris Siemens, who was a uh, a, a well known physician who addressed the issue of maternal imagination, which we talked about, which was really almost a product of folklore, and had become kind of morphed into this notion that if you didn't gratify these maternal cravings, then there would be uh, great harm done uh, onto the child by malevolent spirits or forces. Right? And Siemens had this to say: uh, There is a well known tradition that women who are pregnant are subject to longings for one article of diet or another, and that unless the desire be promptly gratified, the child will be marked. Uh, This evidently is nonsense. A prospective mother, like everyone else, does frequently desire one article of food more than another. So long as the object of her wish is not obviously harmful, it should be granted. But if it is not granted, no harm will come to the child. Boom. That's about as progressive as we're going to get at this point, I would say. Yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable because what mm-hmm. Slimmons is basically saying is, you know, if someone wants if someone wants a bunch of grapes and plums, then fine. Let them let, let them eat what they will. But if someone wants like plutonium, then, you know, maybe maybe have a check-in. <laughs> maybe have a check-in before you start eating uh plutonium. Slimmons also says that popular culture has affected people's perceptions of what pregnant women do and do not want. And he notes that remarkable instances in which disgusting substances have been craved and eaten are often talked about. And Slimmons points out they've even found these stories, these anecdotes have even found their way into fiction. But he also seems to note that there is a a little bit of cherry picking here, right? People are looking for the most sensationalist, tabloidy, buzzfeedy kind of stories. And this leads Slemons to conclude that the people who have these abnormal and or dangerous cravings are unfortunate victims who are not of sound mind. So he is arguing that there is something else going on. It's not just the pregnancy, right? There is there is some other factor at play. And this is, I think, a very sound position to take. There is a good basis for his thoughts here. But, you know, at this point, it's strange, folks, because Max and Noel and I are recording this episode in two parts. We wanted to give the subject its, its full due. And Noel, you know, I cannot wait to hear everybody's stories about their own experiences with food cravings during pregnancy. I have a couple of close friends whose mothers famously had very strange cravings. My mother just got back to me 
as we said in the beginning of this episode. And apparently, I'm a pickle boy. <laughs> I'm apparently, Are you serious? Yeah, apparently it was all pickles. I'm a okay. pickle guy. That's what did it, huh? I don't really eat pickles, you know? I, uh, I've I, I've only, in maybe the last handful of years, come around to pickles. I don't really like them on their own. I like them on certain types of sandwiches and stuff. Mm-hmm. I like pickled things, but I would, I, you know, you see people eat a giant, you know, pickle spear or like a dill. That just doesn't do it for me. But I know they, they're definitely a certain flavor profile. Right. <laughs> right. They, well, got, uh, I guess as a pickle boy myself, I love that term now. I'm going to start using that conventionally. You should. Uh, what what do you guys think, uh, Max? You think we can pull off Pickle Boy in just random conversation? Like, look at that Pickle Boy! Oh, most definitely we can. Most definitely. <laughs> thanks for thanks for supporting, validating, and enabling us, Max. And- oh, I will always enable you all. <laughs> so, so Noel, it's actually pretty on point for uh, my mom to have said that she was desirous of pickles because right now in the modern era, the stereotypical crazy snack for expectant mothers is apparently pickles and ice cream. So going back to part one, man, I am convinced. I haven't checked yet. I'm convinced if there is not such a thing as like dill pickle ice cream, we can make bank on this. We can come out with uh, ridiculous history, pickle ice cream. And, and the tagline is, it's straight seahorse teeth. It is indeed. It is indeed. Um, I, just the idea of those things together um, really make me completely nauseous. Uh, it, surely we pickle ice cream exists, though, right, as a, as a thing nowadays. Pickle ice cream. Yes, Nuna's pickle ice cream. There's a, a frozen pickle. You can get a pickle ice freeze pop. Uh, and then Dolcezza Gelato uh, has a pickle ice cream flavor. And uh, Lucky Pickle Dumpling Company, this seems like a smaller brand, also has debuted a pickle ice cream. So it, it exists if you're really down with it. But I think typically folks, you know, usually go for one or the other. I'm seeing pictures here that are really making my stomach turn. There's like a nice waffle cone with a uh, soft serve swirl of green ice cream with a uh, uh, dill uh, sprinkles on it and an actual looks like more like a gherkin you know those little pickles almost in place of like the cookie you know what is it a tweel kind of situation so pretty gross but if that's what does it for you who, who am i to say yeah i'm not out here to yuck someone's yum I, I i do want to point out while i myself oddly enough am not a uh not a personal fan of the pickle uh, you can find recipes online to create your own pickle ice cream if the spirit moves you so. But why did this become such a cliche? If you look back through the newspapers of the U.S. in the early 20th century, you'll see tons of mentions of pickles and ice cream associated both with pregnancy and without. Like churches and schools and your Rotary Club or your Lions Club, they would put on picnics, social gatherings that included ice cream and pickles because these were treats, delicacies, tasty things that people could make at home. And this was before the time of commercialized, mass-produced food and distribution. So, for instance, 
if you were the Masons in Breckenridge, Kentucky in the 1920s, you would have a lunch with a menu that included things like beef, roast potatoes, pickles, and ice cream. Because those are all things you can make at home. So as mm-hmm. weird as it sounds right now for someone to say, oh, I'm expecting all I want are pickles, all I want is ice cream, then we have to understand that in the context of history, it's not that weird because they're common foods. Yeah, that's true. And it's something that we even see like absolutely become a trope in pop culture, right? Like in uh, the 50s, we have probably one of the most popular comedy shows in the universe still remains one of them to this day. I love Lucy, which is also an incredibly interesting feminist story in terms of Lucille Ball and the way that she essentially started, you know, her own empire. Um, you know, Ricky was involved too, Ricky Ricardo, her husband, but Lucille was really the one who was the driving force behind it. She pioneered multi-camera shoots for sitcoms, the the look that we know today, uh, you know, in terms of like shows like Friends or like more kind of traditional sitcoms. That was all Lucy. And she insisted on having creative control and also getting paid, as did Ricky. But Lucy really was absolutely toe-to-toe with with Ricky in terms of, you know, control over that empire, even when they split. But in a famous episode of I Love Lucy, um, where Lucy is actually pregnant, Lucille Ball is actually pregnant, she plays her character as being pregnant in the show as well. Lucy sends Ricky out to get a papaya milkshake, which would have been a, a nod to his Cuban roots, I believe, and also in a dill pickle. So that really is kind of like almost one of the earliest examples of pickles and ice cream that we see in pop culture. And then he comes back and he looks, uh, you know, like kind of like he's been through the ringer and she asks, you know, indignantly, what took you so long? To which he replies, what took me so long? I had to go all over town uh, because, you know, a papaya milkshake would have been a very specific thing. Then she dips the pickle in the milkshake and eats it and we get a big laugh out of that, you know, from the audience, because that would have been something they hadn't really experienced before and would have been absurd, but also it was the beginning of a real trope. Oh, yeah. And then go back even further in 1919, you'll see comic strips commenting on this, like Mutt and Jeff cartoons have Mutt and Jeff famously saying, cut out that tossing about in your sleep. I told you not to eat those pickles and that ice cream before you went to bed. And uh, this this shows up, right? And it's everywhere in fiction. It's in I Love Lucy. It's in comic strips. It's on stage and screen. And really, since the era of I Love Lucy, pickles and ice cream have been cemented in U.S. popular culture as this cliche, this sort of shorthand for pregnancy. If you go to, I love this website. If you've never heard about this before, I want to warn you, it is going to eat your entire afternoon. There is a, there's a fantastic website called TV Tropes. Be warned, Great it sign. is a time vampire. <laughs> and, and if you go to TV Tropes, check out their Wacky Cravings page where they list all these examples of different times that pickles and ice cream have been used in fiction to refer to pregnancy. It even shows up in romance novels. And there are, you know, of course, no shortage of cookbooks specifically for expecting parents. And they talk about pickles and ice cream as well. It's a joke 
And I, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know how many people actually do crave pickles and ice cream. Like, do we have, aside from, you know, works of fiction like Mutt and Jeff and I Love Lucy, is there someone who specifically said, I really do need pickles and I really do need ice cream? And if so, what flavor of ice cream? I'm just so curious, man. It's a weird one, Ben. It's almost like Luke, I am your father, right? It gets reported so much that that's what the line was, that people start to believe that's actually what the line was. I almost think that pickles and ice cream is more of a creation of pop culture and fiction than perhaps the exact craving of those items. But it represents a larger history of these types of cravings, right? It's just sort of the most extreme one that's good for some laughs because it's so ridiculous. Uh, and it also kind of brings across this very historical and understandable thing. It's very much part of the human experience, as we know, because it's, it's, it goes way, way far back. Another example is in a similar, I think it was in the same Lucy episode, she also sends Ricky back out again at 4 a.m. to get pistachio ice cream and fudge, which she eats topped with sardines. So it's really just kind of this gross confluence of savory and sweet. And it's just sort of meant to indicate that like things are just wild, you know, in the mind of a pregnant woman or in the body or rather of a pregnant woman, that things are just going uh, absolutely bonkers. Yeah. And, you know, this touches on an interesting point raised by Rebecca Onion, who is writing about hysterical cravings on Slate.com. This is a great article. And in this article, Onion points out that it's kind of weird that women apparently have to have these special extenuating circumstances, right? The way this joke goes, the hapless husband has to go out, you know, at 3 a.m. for pickles and ice cream or pistachios or sardines or what have you. Why can't you just ask your partner to do something for you? You know what I mean? Like, why does it have to be, oh, this person is crazy because they're pregnant? Like, I, I, I get it. It's, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone, you should want to help them regardless, right? Regardless of whether they're expecting. Like, if you're dating someone right now and they say, you know what I need? I need a pretzel hot dog. Then help them out. You know what I mean? They don't have to, there, there doesn't have to be a special reason that they want a pretzel hot dog. I think you should just have people's backs. But again, but again, your mileage may vary on a cultural level. We know that other cultures have a deep understanding or a long fascination with pregnancy cravings. And one of our, one of our most interesting examples comes from the Hindu culture, right, Noel? It absolutely does, Ben. Um, in the Hindu culture, the idea of pregnancy cravings is very much codified in, in many of their writings. They have specific words for these things. One of them is dohada, which means two-heartedness. And this is a concept that makes a lot of sense. It, you, a woman who is pregnant literally has two hearts in her body. And so the idea of this two-heartedness encapsulates the idea of this second heart and second soul or will, I guess, within the mother. And the idea of 
kind of feeding these cravings is meant to cultivate like a uh, uh, prosperity within the growing life within the body. It's very much important in the Hindu culture to um, satiate these these cravings, to satisfy those cravings uh, in whatever way they might make themselves known. Yeah, yeah. And then we see other examples in Kenyan culture, where it's thought that the sango, uh, an agent of health present in the bodies of women, is essential for life and day-to-day digestion and successful reproduction. So when a woman becomes pregnant, the sango looks after the kid and watches over how uh, food is transported from the mother to the child, ensuring that everything is five by five on the mom's side. Kenyan culture, we should note, does not specify what a woman should do regarding particular food cravings, but it does demand that an expectant mother balance food intake to prevent the sango from becoming too strong or too weak. Because just like the contradictory information we saw in part one of this episode, there's this idea of balance, right? There's this idea that eating too many strawberries or eating no strawberries can have an equally deleterious potential impact on the child. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. But, you know, Noel, before we go, before we, before we call it a day on part two of this series, remember in part one, we talked about ancient pregnancy tests. We found a couple of other historical pregnancy tests that we wanted to share with you today, ridiculous historians. Uh, this... 
I guess you would call them piss profits, PP profits. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does this, is this anything to do with those old ancient uh, Egyptian peeing on barley tests? If it's just not, then it, it it definitely seems to have a similar uh, similar genre of things, right? I'll answer my own question. It's not exactly the same, but it, it does sort of have a similar borderline scientific, uh, yet ultimately somewhat arbitrary method to its madness. This is the idea of using urine to diagnose different conditions. I think just about the only one that we can use for real is uh, dehydration. I think if your urine is super, super, super orange, that means you're like dehydrated. Um, but they would take it to the extremes in the Middle Ages and up until the 17th century, like you said, Ben, uh, this is known as uroscopy. And they even had something called the uroscopy wheel that would help with diagnosis. It was um, all graded by color. So for example, clear, pale, lemon color, leaning toward the off-white, perhaps with a little bit of a cloudiness to its surface, that would be something that would indicate pregnancy, potentially, right? Also, they would sometimes mix the urine with wine and see how the alcohol kind of, you know, intermingled with the urine. Uh, and that would be another way of seeing if, if a woman was pregnant or not. Oof. Yeah, that's a lot. That's, that's all true. That all actually happened. And if we fast forward to the early 20th century, uh, we see that scientists discovered the role hormones can play in female reproduction, and they identified a specific hormone that was present only in expectant mothers. It's called HCG. Max, help help me out with a sound cue here as I mispronounce this. Human chorionic gonadotropin. Gon gonadotropin. 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 Okay, well, well, we'll keep all three of those. One of those hopefully is right. Back in the 1930s and the 1920s, doctors figured out a way to test for the presence of HCG, and it's, it's a little weird. It's a weird flex. Here's what they did, Noel. They, they would inject urine from a human into an immature mouse, rat, frog, or even sometimes a rabbit. And if the woman who produced the urine was pregnant, then this test subject would go into heat despite being a juvenile. So for a while, to announce their pregnancy status, some women would use euphemisms like the mouse died or I <laughs> killed the Easter bunny because oh, no. you, ha you had to kill and dissect the animal to confirm the results. That is messed up. Oh, it's so messed up. And, and again, very, very imprecise. Not even imprecise, just absolute poppycock. Look, look right? at Max cradling his forehead in sadness. I'm sorry, I bro. I know you didn't sign up for this. It's okay, Max. You didn't kill the Easter Bunny, bro. It wasn't you. <laughs> it was these animals from the uh, the 20s and 30s. God, again, like it's, 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 it's insane how much this stuff carried over into relatively modern times, right? Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, we have actual, you know, strips you can pee on now that mm -hmm. will turn a color, you know, or give you a plus sign. Which one is it? It's plus the good one. I forget. I can't remember. There's one where it's like you get two stripes. And two stripes, yeah. You get one stripe. But what a wild ride, Noel. You know, it's, I got to say, the whole time we've been recording this week's series, 
I've just I've been thinking about our fellow ridiculous historians who are expecting kids as they hear this, you know, and, and just shout out to you folks. It's going to be amazing. And I know that these kind of things can be challenging, you know, and they can be scary, but they're huge. And I would like to just I think all of us on on the show today would like to congratulate the expecting parents in the crowd. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to congratulate you, Ben, for getting through this uh, this massive two-part episode about eating weird food and, and pregnancy and all of this stuff. Uh, this isn't something that we're particularly qualified to discuss, nor is any of the topics that we do here on Ridiculous History, but that's sort of part of the fun of the show. Uh, and we hope you agree, Ridiculous mm-hmm. Historians. But I think that does it for this two-parter, Ben, that we totally decided to do in advance. We did. We did. Kudos to us. Pickles and ice cream all around. Max, where are we at on that largest asparagus? So I've done a little bit of some, you know, research here. And I got the largest asparagus in history. It is from Harry and Carson Willemsey. I'm probably saying that last name wrong. They are of Port Elgin, Canada. And it came in at 351.7 centimeters or about 11 and a half feet. What? Yes, 11 and a half foot Asparagus. Remember, these just grow straight out of the ground. Uh-huh. This is like kaiju asparagus. What kind of weight are we talking here, Max? I, I it, unfortunately, is not listed, and unfortunately, I don't think asparagus lasts generally pretty long because this is from 2004. So Ooh. I think we're we're gonna have to put a challenge out there into like you know the universe. We need a larger asparagus than this, and we need it now because <laughs> I've done some more research. There is pickle ice cream. There is asparagus ice cream. There is not a pickle asparagus ice cream. There he is. That's our guy, Noel. That's our guy right there, Max Williams. Oh, there he is, Max with the facts once again, uh, and he has our backs. I'm sorry, I'm in a rhyming mood this morning. No, it's cool, um, busted. Th- this was fun, dude. Uh, I, yeah, world's largest asparagus. What, what did you say, Max? It was 138.5 inches. That's in the Guinness Book of World Records that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm, that's yeah, it. That's the one. Oh, no, no, Max, Max, I'm sorry, buddy. I think I got you beat. I think this one I'm seeing is from uh, 2020 and the family of Charlotte Briggs uh, and her wife in Pioneer Valley, uh, wherever that is. And there's even a picture of it with some kids um, standing next to it for scale. So I think maybe I got you beat. Not by much, though. Guys, stop everything. Nope, nope. We have to figure out this asparagus question. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm kidding a little bit, fellow ridiculous historians. We are... We are going to call it a day, but as you know, one story leads to another. So, Noel, Max, I propose that we get offline and we really dig down into this asparagus question. This might be a new mission. This could be big for us. Oh, my God, Max, you're right. Um, I, I found this article, I think the same one you're looking at, in the Greenfield Recorder, where it looks like uh, some a local there thought they had the world's biggest asparagus, but then an, an asparagus expert of some sort kind of chimed in and said, oh, hold hold the phone. An there's asparagus? Actually, uh, uh-huh, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's actually a, a much larger one from, from 2004. So uh, it's hotly contested, but I think you are on the right track, my friend. Well, you know, I have to say... Max, I am impressed that you went and actually you dug this up. This has been a wild ride. We hope that it has been helpful. And you don't know, I cannot wait to hear about people's own experiences with food cravings. Yes, of course, for expectant mothers, but also 
Are there any other weird cravings that you just get for some reason? And if so, why? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at Ridiculous Historians. Uh, you can also find us uh, on our email. We went legit, right? We got an email address now. We, we got it do back. have, well, yeah, what is it? Ridiculous at iHeartMedia.com, right? Yeah, that's right. Ridiculous at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, the one and only Max Williams, as well as super producer Casey Pegram. I got to ask you, Noel, what do you think the Quister's take would have been on on the history of food cravings? I don't know, probably something weird about like meat fruit. Remember those like the weird, <laughs> some yes. weird Renaissance fair stuff? You know, uh, you know he's into that kind of thing. Oh, and it's a bummer because the Renaissance fair just ended here in Georgia, and uh, I didn't get to go this year. It's over mm. already. It's over. Last weekend was the last weekend. Dang you know? it. It's a fun time. It's a fun time. And if you go and you want to meet the Quister in person next year, just ask around for the Admiral. It's one <laughs> of his other many alter egos. Mm -hmm. And as always, huge shout out to Alex Williams, who composed this slap and bop you're hearing at the very end and beginning of the show. And big, big thanks to Gabe Luzier, our research associate. Big time. This was a delight. Uh, we'll see you next time, folks, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what. Okay, good. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.